And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Here's something that you will enjoy. As the sun is full of light and the ocean full of water, heaven full of glory, so may my heart be full of thee. Come as power to expel every rebel lust, to reign supreme and keep me thine. Come as teacher, leading me into all truth, filling me with all understanding. Come as love, that I may adore the Father and love him as my all. Come as joy, to dwell in me, move in me, animate me. Come as light, illuminating the scripture, molding me in its laws. Come as sanctifier, body, soul, and spirit, holy thine. Come as helper, with strength to bless and keep, directing my every step. Come as beautifier, bringing bringing order out of confusion, loveliness out of chaos. A little devotional from the Valley of Vision, something I have with me all the time. Let me take a little break. When we come back, Beverly Canaris is in studio. We're going to talk about the book of James. Can hardly wait. Be right back. Wonderful hour. We have Beverly Canaris in studio. You know her. She's a regular guest. She has been a Bible study fellowship uh, teacher for over 30 years, now retired from that, but she is uh, still loving teaching the Word, mentoring, and uh, just being an overall student of the Bible. It's an inspiration to all of us. Bev, welcome. Thanks, Bill. So great to be here yeah. today. Yeah, we're going to talk about James today. I love James. And, uh, it was just our last guest was talking about the wisdom of James. So this is a nice timing. It, it really is. And what did he call the book of James? The wisdom of the New Testament? Uh, I think Rebecca will come yeah. up with that. Yeah, he did it as part of a, a series of wisdom literature, including Proverbs and the things we would normally think of. But he called James the wisdom literature of the New Testament. Love that. Yeah, me too. Love that. Well, I've certainly enjoyed my time studying this book. Um, A few weeks ago, we talked about chapters one through three. So I'm just going to kind of give a little bit of review about this book before we get started. Um, Our main time together, Bill, will be chapters four and five. And it is one loaded book. Um, It's written by, of course, the brother of of Jesus, James. He was a very important early leader in the church. He was a man of prayer. He wrote to those outside of Israel who were really struggling to know how to apply their faith. Uh, James' aim was to help these Christians by challenging them to mature in their faith and what that will look like when they are maturing. He's, he's challenging them to have evidence of a genuine faith. In fact, in this book, um, there are 50 imperatives. So it is similar to Proverbs, where it's one thing after another, and they kind of come at you in a list form. So um, a wonderful book for us to take uh, our study in today. James 1.4 mentions this idea of maturity. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. So that was James' um, aim behind his writing of this book. In chapter 1, just a review from this, he talked about trials and how that trials for the Christian Uh, were not meaningless, that growth can happen. And he even said, consider it pure joy 
of course, now we don't rejoice in the suffering part, but there is a joy knowing that God is going to see us through, that God has the strength, the power, um, all of that we're going to need in this time of suffering, and also that he's going to take those deep things that we go through in this life, sufferings, and use them for our eternal good. And even in this life, we, we will find that very often it brings us a lot of good in our life. We don't want to go through it again. We wouldn't ask for it. But the treasure, I, there was a, an expression that someone said once, uh, when trouble comes to you, she always has a gem in her hand mm. uh, waiting to bless you and to give you this jewel. Um, sometimes it takes forever to find that jewel, and it may take years of perspective. And again, it may take heaven before you see the jewel that was created by this. But we all have that, and so it is encouraging. And it also goes on to say in chapter 1 of James that God promised to provide what we need in that suffering. And what we really need is perseverance um, in order to keep keeping on and have the strength to go forward. And he also promises wisdom. And he says, God is just so willing to give. So my advice, ask away. You know, when Mm -hmm. God, when you're going through those hard times, look at Job. He had one question after another for God. Uh, He was struggling, but he was looking for God's wisdom. This assurance that God gives good gifts uh, is, is really important to us as we go through these difficult times. Also, it mentions in the first chapter that God does not tempt us to evil. He's not out for our destruction. He is out to be a father to us, just as we as parents, you know, don't want to see our kids go through hard times. I don't think God enjoys it either, but he's a good parent in that he knows sometimes we need discipline, sometimes we need to learn certain things, and the only way we do is through different experiences in life that are not always easy. Bev, do you not especially love James uh, chapter 1, verse 5, where it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all. Isn't that just a beautiful... Beautiful. That's why I say, ask away, people. Ask away. We suffer so much just because of our our lack of asking. Um, you know, it's like having the smartest friend in the world and never asking him or asking them questions or finding out anything from them or the, the best pastor in the world and refusing to listen to his sermons. I mean, it seems absurd that we wouldn't go to God, who is one of his attributes is wisdom. He is wisdom. He is all wise. That means he has all wisdom every kind of wisdom that we need. So it's a beautiful promise here. Uh, the first chapter goes on, too. He, James is great with illustrations, if you notice this. He said, God's word is like a mirror. Now, if you look in a mirror and you see, you know, you've got this big glob of spaghetti sauce on your face, you're going to get something and wipe it off and clean it off. And he, really what James is saying here is when you look in the mirror of God's word, and if you see something there that God is telling you that needs to be wiped clean, taken care of, addressed, um, we're to pay attention to that. Because he goes, if we don't, we're like the person who sees the spaghetti stain and walks away and forgets about it. That's me after breakfast. Yeah, spaghetti. Sure, why not? Yeah, good old leftovers. Oh, yeah. Well, then chapter two, just as a review, James challenged the readers not to be a respecter of persons. Apparently, there was a lot of this going on um, where they were preferring the rich, the important people over the poor and the slaves and people who were more the down and outers. And the church was showing favoritism. And James says, that's not right. We're to see each person as God's special creation. And we're to keep what he calls this royal law, which is 
love your neighbor as yourself. So again, he's he's taking them right back to the basics of our Christian faith in these um, uh, very important points about loving our neighbor, about asking for wisdom. What do we do in suffering? All of these things are helping us to mature. The second half then of chapter two is important to the discussion on faith and works and how those two things work together. Are they opposed? Are we saved by works? Are we saved by faith? Are we saved by faith and works? Is it a combo situation? Um, That is a struggling question I think a lot of people have. I remember when I first started studying the Bible, I wondered, well, isn't faith a work? But then I was directed to Ephesians 2, which was really helpful to me. And um, it, it really gives us the, the right look at this idea of juggling faith and works. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. So that's what I needed to learn. Mm-hmm. It's a gift. No, it's not a work on my part. Not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So there it mentions both kinds of works. The work of faith is not a work at all. It's a gift from God when we believe. That's not a work. So it's, and Paul writes in Romans, uh, our faith is, our belief is from in faith, faith in Christ from first to last. So we become a Christian by receiving the gift of faith from the Lord Jesus Christ. But then, once we are his, he has ordained works for us to do that he's assigned ahead of time. And I find that very reassuring, Mm -hmm. that we don't have to um, think about what kind of works we're going to do. As we seek him, he is going to bring into our life that kind of work that he's prepared for us. So, is it saved by works? No. Is it saved by faith? Yes. Is it a combo? No, but it is evidence. Works are evidence of a genuine faith. All right, Bev, I think I might take a little break at this point. We're uh, talking to Beverly Canaris, and we're going to get to chapters 4 and 5 in the book of James, but right now we're doing a little bit of review, and I'm loving it because the last time you were on, we were chatting about these very things, and we're going to catch up and then uh, move ahead into chapter 4 and 5. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back. you have your Bible out and the book of James opened, we're talking to Beverly Canaris, and we're going to get to chapters 4 and 5. That's the place we're heading, but we're just doing some light review. And I think we are all, all the way up to the uh, chapter 3, aren't we? We are. The famous chapter 3 in the book of James. Um, it's a wonderful section of teaching on our tongues and how we should be using them, our speech. Uh, he has a lot of illustrations. Again, he talks about our tongue is like a bit in an animal's mouth that controls the whole animal, or a rudder on a ship. Think how small that is, and yet it directs the ship. Um, And they're really beautiful illustrations, and how a spark can set a whole forest on fire. So that little bitty muscle in our mouth can really uh, have dramatic effects on our lives and the lives of those people around us. In verse 19 in this uh, chapter, he says, Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak. That was verse 19, actually, from chapter 1. And then also, 
from chapter one, he kind of hits this topic of the tongue again and again throughout the book. Uh, Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and the religion is worthless. So very stern warning there about keeping our tongues in check. And then chapter three ends with some truth about what God's wisdom will sound like on a tongue that is under God's control. And it's, it's really beautifully said here. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reach, reap a harvest of righteousness. So that's what God's wisdom looked like. When we're using our tongue under his control, those are some of the things that should be coming out of us. Okay, so, Bill. Good review there for That's just those review. first three chapters, That's kind of hitting helpful. the highlights. And so we kind of remember what, what James is all about. He's writing to uh, cause us to move along in our in our walk with the Lord, and that might be just right where a lot of your listeners are. They want to mature in their life, in their Christian walk with God, and they feel kind of stuck or they even feel like they might be backsliding. And James even addresses that at the end of his book. And another thing I love about James being a half-brother of Jesus is he didn't come to faith in Christ until after the resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. He grew up with him. Yeah. Think about that. Yeah. And he, you know, was probably at the the miracle of the Cana uh, wine. And mm-hmm. I mean, it, it took time, but he couldn't deny the resurrection. Right. Yeah. So that, that was a dramatic change there. And look how he was so instrumental in the early days of the church. Well, chapter four talks about the worldly Christian. Um, and now those are kind of oxymorons. They're worldly and Christian, but it happens. Um, it really is a problem within the church, within our own lives. We see it often. Now, you may have heard the term carnal Christian, and that just means someone who is a worldly Christian. Worldly means that we're being controlled by the world's wisdom and its ways and all the many things that are anti-God in our culture, we are possibly then being just controlled by our flesh or and, of course, the devil. So those three things, the Lord gives Christians the Holy Spirit to fight all three of those battles, to fight the battle against the just going with the flow in the world, to fight the battle where the enemy might come in and be tempting us, or just ourselves, our own bent nature on wanting to do it my way, wanting to have an independence from God. Bev, are you suggesting the worldly Christian is uh, Christian in name only? Maybe um, call themselves a Christian, but maybe aren't an actual true believer? That very That is absolutely possible. Okay. Absolutely. Sometimes they can just think culturally, well, that's what I grew up, so that's what I must be. Yeah. Um, or they they made some kind of a confession years ago and have there's been there's been no fruit mm-hmm. there's been no growth yeah, no. and then you have every right to question whether this is you or someone you love you have every right to question was that a sincere confession mm-hmm. or are they just living as a worldly Christian I think this chapter really speaks uh, loudly that that that's not a good thing First John four four says you adulterous people don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God. Now, that's a pretty shocking quote, isn't it? Um, Kind of the direct approach. Yeah, really. Yeah, he wasn't uh, mincing words, as we'd say today. Um, 
all of us fight these three enemies. We all have that natural inclination to, to go our own way, to go the way of the flesh, to please our flesh, to cater to it in many different ways. And we all have the, um, this idea of, of kind of wanting to follow what the world is doing, not to be different, but really to be a Christian, we're called to be different. But this fight is meant to strengthen us in our Christian walk. However, not all Christians are fully committed to the obedient following of Christ. We can easily follow the crowd, rationalize, and listen to the enemy's temptations to sin. So what does it look like when we're a worldly Christian? Well, the first thing that he mentions here is it disrupts relationships. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire to have, so you kill, you cover, but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. Wow. So when we're living a worldly life, we're going to have that a greater disruption in our relationships. Without submission to God, our desires will lead us down a really unhappy path. This worldliness really talks about having unchecked desires. Seeking our own pleasures is going to lead us to what I just read, envy, quarreling, division, and farther away from God. Even our prayers can become corrupted. He goes on to say, you do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. They were not asking God, not bringing him into whatever they needed. They were just asking God for things that would make their life more comfortable, things they wanted with um, probably a disregard for others. It was just all selfish in prayer. And that's the ask and miss part? Yeah. Asking with wrong motives. Mm-hmm. 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 And God knows our heart when we're asking. Um, and it's it's not saying you can't ask for anything personal. You should be totally selfless in prayer. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that for a minute. Um, I believe that you can ask for the smallest detail in your life uh, in prayer. But what it is, it's like, you know, praying always for that, the next big thing in your life, praying always for that, that material possession, praying things that um, don't enrich your spiritual life, but may even be pulling you away from God. So selfish praying, praying for things that actually could harm rather than enhance our spiritual life. Um, they were not asking God. They were in a prayerlessness and rebellion against God. When you're worldly, you think you don't need God. Um, It's really having a lack of regard for his presence and his power to help them. I recently read in one of my favorite devotional books a story of a four-year-old little boy who kept saying to his dad, I'll do it. I can do it. I can do it. Okay, so the dad, what did he do? Rather than argue with him, clearly he couldn't do it. He walked in the other room and just let the little boy struggle until finally the little boy came to his room, peeked his head around the corner, and he said, I can't do it. And sometimes that's what our Heavenly Father does. He waits for that point where we come to him and say, I can't do it. So that's where pride can be a big stumbling block for all of us. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly where James goes next. Um, He talks about um, the pride that comes from being worldly. Uh, James his really his message here is you don't have what you desire because you don't desire God first. Mm-hmm. So when God is not first in your life, your your desires are going to be skewed. So our prayer life will be transformed and be more powerful and consistent when we ask God to make his desires our desires. Think how simple that is to pray. God, 
Make my desires line up with your desires. I think our whole prayer life would be transformed. We know then we pray according to his will. I think a lot of times what I have done, I've kind of asked God to bless my plans, and I give him all kinds of ideas as to how he should answer. Um, But I have to constantly remind myself, yes, I can ask anything, but I need to ask with an open heart, wanting his plans, his wisdom, his will for my life more than my own. So uh, that is something I have to keep in mind. So I wonder, are, are you asking Listeners, as you hear this over the radio, will we go to prayer with the attitude, thy will be done? I love how it was once described as all of our prayers need to be under the umbrella of God's will. Thy will be done from the Lord's prayer. Thy will be done under that umbrella in his name. Now, if we're asking something in his name, that means for his glory. It means for our eternal good. It means to further his kingdom in this world. So when we pray in his name, we're really praying too, asking God for his will. Now, the next set of verses from James in chapter 4 deal with people who want to straddle the fence. Again, kind of addressing this worldly thing. They want to love God and they want to love the world. And what does uh, James call it? He calls that really um, adulterous shocking word used in the Old Testament often to describe the relationship Israel had with God. They were an adulterous people in Hosea. Um, It's like a husband or a wife says, I'm going to love you and this other person. Yikes, it is a spiritual adultery Mm -hmm. when we love more someone, something, uh, something in this life more than we love God. All right, Bev, we're taking a little break. Beverly Canaris is my guest in studio. We're talking about the book of James and loving it. We're going to be covering mostly uh, chapters four and five. So get your Bibles out, get a notebook, take some notes. We'll take a short break and be right back. Nice note from Susan who said, love James, this is fabulous. I bet there's a lot of other people like Susan thinking the same thing, including me. Beverly Canaris is my guest in studio. We're talking about the book of James. We did a little review on the first three chapters, which is what we covered last time she was here. And now we're plowing ahead, chapter four and chapter five. We're going to spend our time going over those. We're now in chapter four. I think when we last left off, Bev, I think we were talking about how pride, pride keeps us worldly. It does. It does. And this is really what James is addressing here in chapter four. So if you feel like this is a a big deal to you, a a temptation, and I think it is to all of us, these are good words to read. Um, There are so many trinkets and things in this world that will pull our heart from God. And this is what he's just warning them against. Uh, Where our treasure is, Jesus said, there will our heart be. The world or this system of evil under Satan's control that is opposed to God will head your life in the opposite direction of that of God's. So if we're going to put all of our, um, you know, all of our energies into the world, we're not going to be headed in God's direction. We're going to get off track. 
Now, nothing is wrong with enjoying pleasures in life. God has given us so much to enjoy. Look at the beauty in nature, Bill, and uh, all of the pleasures we have in families and love and friendships and and, uh, so many things have such joy. We just need to always be aware that those pleasures and desires can become our driving force when it's really meant to be God. Um, the word here chooses means choosing one means also choosing against another. So choosing uh, to to follow God rather than those worldly desires. And in the struggle, it next says that yet God gives more grace. So we can withstand all of this pull of the world and our own self and Satan and live in faithfulness to God. James cont- James continues this discussion. Um, on when he talks about worldliness by identifying an underlying motive for worldliness. And I think you just brought it up, Bill, pride. That really is our chief sin um, in most things is you go back to the root and it usually is pride. Pride keeps us from seeing our sin and our need for God. Humility opens us up to receiving God's grace and forgiveness. Pride will keep us worldly. So true. Mm-hmm. Pride is mostly behind all the greed and these strained relationships. It usually, you can find your way all the way back, trace it all the way back to a prideful heart. Um, so really a principle in scripture here is this, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Listen to these next verses in chapter 7. Submit yourselves then to God. This is his remedy for the worldliness that we all struggle against. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So let's break this down a little bit. Submit to God. That means go all in. Mm-hmm. Give it all. Surrender. All goes to him. Resist the devil. Rely on God to give you the strength to resist the temptation that's trying to pull you away from God today. Come near to God. Answer his call. He's wooing you. He's going after you. He left the 99 to go get you the one. So answer God's call. Come near to him. Don't keep running away. Wash and purify That we can only have happen through the blood of Christ. Jesus Christ came as an atonement for sin. He alone, by his perfect righteousness and blood, can cleanse us. So when we have faith in him, we receive that gift from God. We then are washed and are pure. But it's only through Christ. It's not self-reformation that is going to cleanse and purify our life. And then it talks about grieving and mourning in such powerful words here. Um, And that really should be over sin. Don't accept sin. I recently heard a sermon, and um, this particular person was woeing about how he's got an anger issue. And just, I, I thought, what? Wait a second. He's, it really sounded like he just accepted it as kind of who he is, and that's how he grew up, and that's what his dad, and I thought, no, 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 no. The minute we stop fighting against sin and we accept it, we're in trouble. That should be something that is repented of, get help for, um, so that they, we are to be grieving and mourning over sin. That's such an important point you just made. So important. It is. Yeah, I, I would love for you to even repeat that. Well, yes. Um, you can't accept, don't accept your sin. 
were to struggle against it continually. Mm-hmm. And I actually heard that from John Piper mm-hmm. uh, at one point years ago, and I've never forgotten it. I always have to fight the fight and struggle the struggle. The minute I give up and just say, well, that's the way it is, and I just start accepting it into my life, I am just going down the wrong path. Great point. Yeah. So so that's the grieving and the mourning over sin. So all of these things that James mentions here in these verses, all of these will strengthen us. You know what in? Humility. And help us to rid ourselves of that pride. And it will also strengthen us in living God's way. So a principle here I really want to uh, pay attention to is that submission, putting God's desires first, that's what submission is. It's putting God's desires first. It's a penetrating thing to ask yourself. Am I really putting God's desires first over my own? Submission is really an act of the will, but it's assisted by God's spirit. I can't lay it all down. I mean, it's impossible. I don't have the desire to completely give, give up everything for Christ. But Christ in me, I do because he lives in me now and his desires are my desires now. So submission is an act of the will, but it's assisted by God's spirit. We can't do it on our own. And then the chapter closes with another warning of the proud and the worldly, boasting about what they're going to do tomorrow. Another uh, sign of a prideful person, a worldly person. And he he talks about, well, you you shouldn't say you're going to go do this and you're going to go do that. You should be saying, if the Lord's, it is the Lord's will. Um, This is not saying that planning's not good. Yes, we should plan. We can plan carefully. God's a planner. God's a God of order. That's all very important. However, as we plan, we're to keep in mind that we don't have tomorrow. He says here, you're only a mist. What are you, what are you counting on tomorrow for? We only have today. So life is a gift. Each day is to be treasured. All planning is to be done prayerfully with God, seeking his plan and his will for our lives. The mindset illustrated here puts people in control. But the truth is God is in control and is sovereign. It is not, we are not self-sovereign people. He's the one. God has a claim upon us. He's our creator for all people. That's his claim on all people. And as Christians, he has a claim on us because we were bought with a price, the precious blood of his son. Bev, wouldn't you say self-sovereignty started in the garden? I think Eve just started that trend, absolutely. I think she did. And I don't want to be under yeah. God's authority. I've got something else I want to try mm-hmm. for myself. Mm-hmm. One, one restriction in One. the most beautiful place mm-hmm. on earth ever, yeah. I, as I imagine it. Mm-hmm. And um, she chose to go her own way, to do her own thing, to trust in her own wisdom. It's another thing that James really is warning us against. You know, look to God for that wisdom. Our own wisdom, our own self-sovereignty will not bring us into the best that God has planned for us. So what's the truth here about all, making plans? When making future plans, seek the one who holds the future. He has the plan for your life. So think about that when you're making plans. In planning, pray, seek him, read his word. What is his perspective? What are his standards and goals for you? Go for godly counsel and wait. Wait on the Lord. If you don't know what to do, wait and keep asking God those questions. Don't be afraid to ask God questions and for guidance and to talk to godly people. So planning is good, but it needs to be planned always with your will bowing before his will and wanting that more. Bev, what about uh, people that have lived a good 
part of their life already, and now they're looking back and they they didn't have their plans work the way they thought they would. Well, you know, I have had a lot of experience with that. And finally, it came down to me, this thought. When I allow God to choose, I get the very best. When I allow God to choose, I get the very best. Mm -hmm. All right, Bev, I'm going to take a break a little earlier, um, and I'm going to be right back. Uh, Beverly Canaris is my guest. We're talking about the book of James. We're going to take a very short break and be right back. Some awfully nice notes on the book of James. Emily said I've been wearing James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4 on my wrist for almost eight years. Oh, I love James. Powerful. Mm -hmm. I bet she has that memorized. (laughs) Yeah. And my wingman, Terry, said my spiritual life corresponds with your show as pure providence. I have a plethora of saved drafts on my phone. And a few days ago, I was going through them to delete ones I no longer needed. I found a few Bible verses I haven't seen since I saved them in 2016. One was James 4.10, which I have now memorized. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. I'm so cherishing this continued uh, study of James with Bev. How nice is that? That's really encouraging. Thank you so much. But let's finish this book. We've got chapter 5, and is it loaded? It's such a strong finish. It seems that this chapter was written with the perspective that Christ was going to come at any time. Are you going to be ready? Um, How are you? should we be treating each other then? He begins by calling out the rich who were misusing their wealth and mistreating their servants. Now, that would today be employees. Um, He warns them that their wealth is going to rot away and will bring them no eternal advantage. So we know we can't take it with us. I mean, that's an old saying, and there's parables about all of that. Uh, James here is just reminding them about the responsibility it is when you have financial means. All of their hoarding in the last days and their abuse by not paying their labor force is going to bring them condemnation from God. He holds us responsible for how we use the the funds and the, the things that he has given us, whether it's a home or cash or opportunities, he holds us accountable. Their luxurious lifestyle is called here self-indulgent and selfish. And there were cries of injustice, and God sees those cries. Think of Israel uh, enslaved by Egypt. God heard their cries. I, I always stop at verses like that. God hears. He understands when a people or a person is being oppressed. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not saying that God's against money. He is not against wealth. It's the love of money, we're told in Scripture, that that is um, can be sinful, that will bring heartache. Money is a gift of God to really be stewarded by those who have it. To him who is much given, much is expected. And that can be, um, you don't have to be a, ultimately a very rich person in order to be greedy or to not share what you do have. Um, greed and hoarding can take over in the pursuit of money. Money can make a person feel protected and in no need of God or other people. It gives them a, an arrogance. And again, he's, remember, he's talking against pride here and, and praising the idea of being humble. They think they're better than others. 
Money is power, and power can always be misused or used for good. So there's a real warning here, and the warning is is that wealth is a tool to help, not to hurt. Mm-hmm. Wealth is a, t- is a tool to help and not to hurt. And it doesn't mean um, a millionaire. It means whatever financial means you have, it should be a tool to help and not to hurt others. Um, the second thing James addresses here in chapter 5 is suffering again. He kind of goes back to where he was in chapter 1. He asked them to be patient in their suffering because Jesus is coming back. Hallelujah. That's the good news. He said, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable c- crop, patiently waiting for autumn, spring rains. You too be patient, stand firm, because the Lord's coming is very near. So as they wait, they are then to treat each other. Well, the judge is at the door. They're to persevere. He goes on to call and calls out Job as an example. They're to persevere like he did. And in the end, they will clearly see the Lord's compassion and mercy. You know, Job may have complained and he asked the Lord a lot of questions, but he didn't stop trusting in the Lord or obeying the Lord. Job never received a clear explanation for his suffering. Think about that. Amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, it is. But this is who this is who James is using as an example here. We got to persevere even when we don't know why is this happening to me? And I think your guest earlier really addressed some of those questions that we ask God in our times of suffering. But the question really isn't um why, it's really who. Who can help me now and what can this do for me? Um it, where's the good? Where's the jewel in this suffering? Very often in life we have to live beyond the explanations And keep going back to trusting the Lord, who's always compassionate, always merciful. And then in the middle of here, chapter 5, James goes again to one of his themes, that of the tongue, our words. Listen to verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or earth or anything else. All you need to say is simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. We are to have honest speech. That doesn't need to be clarified as truth. You know, what do we say today, Bill? I'm not kidding. Right. <laughs> or, or right. You ever know someone you have a conversation with, they're always going, right, right. It's like, can I never disagree with you? <laughs> Good point. Or I'm not lying. I'm not lying. Or honest. Um, or I promise. I swear. That doesn't really bode well for us as if we have to try to convince people that this time we're being honest. We want to mature in our honesty, making sure our words have integrity. If we're known, you know, to be an exaggerator, you know, that's a form of lying. Mm-hmm. Exaggeration or to have a reputation for lying, we're going to have a hard time getting people to believe us. Um, do we keep our word even when it's hard or inconvenient? And, you know, parents, I think that's a real warning sign for parents because parents can make all kinds of promises and not keep their word. Uh, your children will deal with that later. Well, what about suggesting consequences they don't follow through on? Same thing? Same thing. Yeah. There's, there's a lack of an integrity there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to have any kind of relationship with the person who is a habitual liar. I've had friends that have gone through <clears throat> a divorce, excuse me, and they... They were dealing with a habitual liar. They didn't know what to trust, what to what was real, what was not. It it just made the marriage so stressed 
So in order to have rich, deep relationships, there has to be honesty. God is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if the Lord lives within us, then we have to speak the truth. And scripture says elsewhere, speak the truth in love. As someone has said, our honesty really should be unquestionable. Now, this is different from what we take an oath in courts. That is a very solemn legal uh, situation there where perjury is such a serious offense. I love the way the book of James concludes. James urges us to pray. And remember, he just said earlier, you don't have because you don't ask. He's saying pray. Here is a key to becoming more mature. Here is a way to use our tongues to bless and to not harm. This book really, at first it seems like a a mishmash of all these 50 different imperatives. But as you read it and as you really meditate and study and look at it, you see these overriding themes coming through. And here he talks about prayer in verses, starting in verse uh, 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let him pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call on the elders of the church to pray over them. Anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will be make the sick person well, the Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other so that you will be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So if we have troubles, what are we to do? Pray. If we're happy, we're to pray as far as singing songs unto the Lord of praise, lifting up our voices. If we're sick and sickness can be sick with sin, sick in our body, sick mentally, sick in grief, sick of heart, we're to call the elders around us, those literally elders in your church or the mature Christians around you, and have them anoint with oil. Um, That oil is just a picture of the Holy Spirit, and then the oil was a remedy, uh, a healing remedy of the day. We need each other. We need fellow Christians to come around us in our many sicknesses and troubles. We're not meant to bear it alone. You know, but There are times, and I don't know if you've ever gone through this, Bill, where we cannot pray and we need others Mm -hmm. to pray for us. I remember going through a period of my life where I asked several people just to be praying for me because I really can't pray right now. Or if I'm I'm on my way to be to teaching or something, doing something, I will ask God, God, have your people pray for me. I need prayer right now. I don't even know what to say. I'm so overwhelmed with the circumstance. Just have your people pray. (laughs) And I really trust him that he's doing Mm -hmm. that. Um, So often then I'd hear somebody say, I really prayed for you this morning. I was so thankful Mm. that God's people pay attention to those nudges and do pray. It's pretty wild when you get someone who kind of lets you know that God prompted me to pray for you today. It's powerful, isn't it, Bill? It's very powerful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure you've had that happen as well. Yeah, I have. You you are, I feel so grateful. Serving God two hours a day on the radio where your every word is something. <laughs> it's kind of scary. But to, to know that people are praying for you is, is such a blessing. Now, here it talks about the elders. And again, it can be those people more mature in the faith or, or close friends. Um, elders are shepherds. They're not just meant to be managers managing a budget. Elders really in a church are to be serving people as well. James qualifies that the prayer of the righteous person is powerful and effective. So who's that? Well, do I consider myself a righteous person? Uh, No, but I am righteous in Christ. In Christ, I can pray as a righteous person 
and it will be powerful and effective. It's not my own righteousness. It's the righteousness that I have now from Christ, him in me. Now, however, this person we seek to pray for us should be someone who knows and walks with the Lord. They don't have to be perfect. I even think children praying over you are pretty special. Um, The elders were to anoint with oil and pray. We talked about that a little bit. And then there's the question here when you read this passage, God doesn't always heal. And sometimes his healing is death and to take us to be with himself. I remember... uh, a friend of mine who had brain cancer, and she um, was not healed physically. She did die young, but she would always say, I've been healed. I've been healed. She had such joy in her soul from the Lord that he healed. What's most important about her was the relationship she had with him, this joy she had with him, regardless of the circumstances of her body. So, it was eye-opening to me. I'd never really seen someone um, respond in such a way to such grave illness. Then there's a mention, too, of confession of sin. Sometimes our sicknesses are linked to sin, right? We yeah, know that. Absolutely. That just makes sense. However, Jesus told, you know, corrected the thinking that all sickness is due to sin. He said, no, no, it was not this blind man's parents or this blind man. It was so that God's glory might be seen. So it's not, it's when we're sick and when we have these kind of sicknesses, it's not necessarily that God is punishing us by any means. Um, so keep that in mind as well. This is really an example of intercessory prayer, carrying each other's burdens. We're to be priests for one another. Um, we're given an example of prayer from the Old Testament. Elijah. God used Elijah to show King Ahab that the false god Baal didn't have power over the rain, but God did. So Elijah prayed, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Then he prayed again, and the heavens opened. So what we need to be clear about Elijah here was that he was no superhero. You know, everybody's calling this group of people or this group of people superheroes today. But Elijah wasn't one of them. He was a man. And Scripture even says he was a human being, even like we are. He was flesh. He had doubts. Remember him hiding in a cave? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Thinking that he's the only one left. Mm -hmm. He was depressed. He had fears, just like us. It was his man cave, though. Oh, you're so quick. <laughs> That's so good. So it might not have been as bad as we think. <laughs> I guess not. Oh, funny. So even though Elijah knew he had weaknesses, what was the difference? He trust, His trust was really fixed on God to do what only God could do. The same God, now this is the promise here, the same God who heard Elijah pray and then accomplished powerful acts, here's our God, here's our prayers. We are to identify. The scripture really is telling us, identify with Elijah. He was a man. He was a weak vessel, just like us. But God heard his prayer and acted mightily through him. So the truth that we want to take away here, a principle here, is that human weakness does not limit God's power to answer prayer. Let me say that again. Human weakness does not limit God's power to answer prayer. We got to remember that. It's not the person praying. It really is Uh, God who acts. It's really God who we're asking to come into the situation, not our power. So how does this example of Elijah encourage you to pray with boldness? It certainly does me. Yeah, that might have to be where we stop, Bev. Well, it's been a great, great tour around this book of James, hasn't it? It sure has. 
it's it's a powerful one that really wants us to um, mature in our faith. And the road to that maturity, I think, if James summed it up, would be obedience, obedience to the Word of God. Thank you so much, Beverly Canaris, for being my guest. If you missed any of this, head to MyFaithRadio.com. You're going to want to hear this from the beginning. Great study on the book of James. That wraps up our show for the night. As you lay your head on that pillow, just know that God's working out His great plan in your life. See you tomorrow.